Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. And this is part two. That's right. That's for you to say. It's part two of the Lindbergh uh, baby kidnapping. Yeah. Uh, should we thank our patrons first? Let's do it, Desi. Okay. We have a Patreon where if you subscribe, you have access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes. That's that's just at the $5 tier. If you subscribe to the $10 tier, then you can get all that shit. Plus, we do monthly movie recaps. We do two of them a month. You also get access to the Discord. And we have a sick Discord channel. <laughs> I'm really enjoying it a lot. Everyone's really nice. I like seeing pictures of... Every- we have like several different subcategories. Did the- you like how I organized it? Yeah, it was really good. Um, there are several different subcategories in the Discord channel. So if like you don't want to talk about a certain topic, you don't have to look at it. There's like several different... Places to chat. I like how the majority of our things aren't even related to the episodes. It's like yeah. all other stuff. No, it's stuff we're interested in. But people are really talented in the Discord. Yeah. We see pictures of like... The food. At, the food that people cook and... Their talented pets. Their talented pets <laughs> are also very talented. It's just like a fun place and I'm enjoying chatting with people there. Yeah. Um. Patreon. Okay. Thank you all so much. This this is great. This week we had Katie, Sarah, Samantha, Steve, Robert, Don, Sabrina, James, Jasmine, Nika, Maddie, Lisa, Jenny, Jennifer, Julia, Karina, Carmel, Lisa, Kylie, and Ryan. Thank you very much. So... As mentioned before, we are back for part two of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. At the time it happened, it was considered the crime of the century, and it truly is a case that is still being talked about today because there is a lot of unanswered questions, as well as suspicious behavior by several people involved in the case, including investigators and Charles Lindbergh himself. Once again, the book I'm using as a main source is called The Lindbergh Kidnapping Suspect Number One by Lisa Perlman. And one of the reasons I picked this book, other than the fact that it is heavily researched and in-depth, it's also very the most recent book. Um, but the, the main reason is because Lisa puts forward, in my opinion, the wildest theory on what actually happened in this case yet. But before we get to the theories, we have more to get through regarding the facts of the case. Where we left off uh, last week, after over two months of being missing, investigators believe they have found the body of the missing child. After the news breaks, the nation is in grief, and they are also out for blood. So on May 12, 1932, at 4.58 p.m., 
Betty Gal, who is the um, n- the nurse, the night nurse for the child, is brought in to identify the remains found on the side of the road. She recognizes the clothing found with the remains and positively IDs the body as being that of Charles Lindbergh Jr. The missing person case officially becomes a murder investigation. By 7.30 p.m., the news breaks everywhere, including to Charles Sr., who, if you don't remember, was on another wild goose chase with John Curtis um, on some kind of ransom lead, and they weren't able to be reached until then. Headlines screamed, Baby Lindy found beaten to death. Now, this info was not official yet, but was sort of a preliminary guess as the head had severe fractures. Lindbergh wouldn't leave wherever he was until hours later, which is pretty weird considering that his baby was possibly just found. So he wasn't back when they wanted to begin the autopsy because Anne, the mom, was obviously too distraught. Um, Betty Gow was once again sent to observe the autopsy. Coroner Frank Swayze was appalled when Betty Gow arrived looking what he said was tarted up (gasps) with excessive makeup and smacking gum in this solemn procedure. He later said he wanted to throttle her. We love an inappropriate tart. (laughs) I don't know what was on her mind, but Uh, wow, that's something. So Gal is able to further confirm the identity upon seeing the overlapping toes of the right foot, something that was very distinct on the child. The initial conclusion was that he died by blunt force trauma to the head, but weirdly enough, this wasn't even considered a full autopsy. They kind of referred to it as a look-see. So Lindbergh finally arrives early into the next morning. He comforts his wife by saying, if the baby died the night he went missing, then nothing could have been done. Nothing that could have been done by us would have made a difference anyway. So very odd comfort to be sure. One thing I forgot to mention last week was the fact that Anne is pregnant with their second child at the time. So all of this trauma is happening while she's in the early stages of her pregnancy, which just adds to her emotional devastation and stress. Obviously, Charles had no way of knowing that the child died the same night he was kidnapped, Mm -hmm. or did he? So as during the kidnap phase, uh, Charles is remarkably unemotional. Anne is disturbed by her husband's demeanor. The next day she writes in her diary, his terrible patience and sweetness and silence is terrifying. The next day, Lindbergh insists that he also identify the child. Observers looked on in horror as he asked for a sharp tool, then pried open the mouth to count the child's teeth. Wait a minute. They let him do this? Yes. They let him do this? Yes. He's not a doctor. No. He also examines the toe before saying, quote, I am perfectly satisfied that this is my child. Charles Jr. never receives a full autopsy, something that is required by New Jersey State for all homicides. There are no toxicology tests or whatever the version of that was back then, anything. That's crazy. There's not even any outside confirmation that this is the right body from an independent source. It's just based on the world of Charles Sr. and Betty Gao. So basically, this is one of the first things that people are suspicious of, that this possibly wasn't even the right body. Like maybe the baby is still alive and out there. Like that was an early conspiracy theory. Um, Adding to that is just the misgivings about how everything in this case has been handled up until that point. But despite the misgivings of some people in this coroner's office who had more questions and wanted to do more investigation, they basically just kind of sign off 
on this, uh, this autopsy report without really doing the full thing. One person in the coroner's office, a Dr. Mitchell, was particularly unsure of everything that was going down. One of the fractures on the skull was a small hole on one side, and he theorized that the child possibly died by gunshot wound, but this was immediately dismissed and was never investigated further. Lindbergh insists on immediate cremation, despite Anna's objections. She felt um, a service would give her some closure, but Charles didn't care. He literally waited for the ashes to, to be like produced and immediately scatters them just outside the coroner's office. So there's no... Wait, mom- he scatters the ashes outside the yes. coroner's office? I'm sorry. <laughs> like in the field next to, that, to there or whatever. This is wild. There's no memorial or funeral for the baby ever. Why? He's done. Uh, And Anna would later say that Charles didn't once shed a single tear for her son, as far as she saw. Now, the murder investigation was beginning, um, and people, including the press, really began to pick apart all the ways the kidnapping investigation had been fucked up. We touched on a lot of that last episode, But these errors became even more egregious because now that original crime scene and evidence was to be the foundation for a murder investigation, and they basically had jack shit. In June of 1932, officials began to suspect that the crime had been perpetrated by someone the Lindberghs knew and began focusing on the household staff. Some reasons for this. They knew the child's unusual sleep schedule that we talked about last week. They also knew that the family would be at the farmhouse this Tuesday when that was not their typical schedule. During the week, they usually were at Anna's family's estate, but because the baby was recovering from his cold, they decided it was best to just stay there and let him recover. Suspicion fell upon one of the household workers named Violet Sharp. She had given contradictory information regarding her whereabouts on the night of the kidnapping, And it was reported that she appeared nervous and suspicious when being questioned. Now, Anne Morrow stood by Violet saying she was completely devoted to the baby and there was no way she was involved. Violet was so distraught by the allegations that on June 10th, 1932, she took her own life by ingesting a silver polish that contained cyanide just before being questioned for the fourth time. After this happens, her alibi is confirmed and police are criticized for their aggressive treatment of poor Violet. John Condon, who we remember from last week, was also questioned by the police and his home searched, but nothing suggested uh, that he was involved. Charles Lindbergh stood by him during this time. Who was John Condon again? He's the the personality from the Bronx right. who helped with the ransom uh, drop-offs with Cemetery John. So after the discovery of the body, Condon actually is unofficially involved with the case still. He... You know, in addition to be being thought of as a suspect, um, he kind of is carrying on his own investigation on the side. He has a lot of really flamboyant actions, including once riding a city bus, he sees he sees what he thinks is the suspect on the street. Um, he orders the bus to stop. The drive, driver does it, and he darts from the bus, chasing this guy through the crowd and losing him. Why did he think he was a suspect? I have no idea because because he he had this meeting. With Cemetery John, right? Who he didn't see, you know, the guy was disguised. But I guess I have no idea why he thought this guy. But it's just stupid. Um, he also agreed to appear in a vaudeville act that was sort of reenacting the kidnapping, and that was that's, sort of crazy and a turnoff. Tasteless, very tasteless. 
In August of 1932, the Lindberghs have their second son, John, and they basically resume their life of travel and flying because Charles wants to get back to life as usual. Now, the investigators who are working on the case are pretty much at a standstill. There are no developments and little evidence of any sort, so they turn their attention to tracking the ransom payments. A pamphlet is prepared um, using the serial numbers of the ransom bills, and these are distributed to businesses, mainly in the New York City area, since this was where the drop was made. And some of these start popping up, including as far away as Chicago and Minneapolis, but the people who use those bills are never found. As I mentioned last week, the gold certificates were going to be um, sort of put out of business and replaced with dollar bills or, or like money. Uh, and this had to be done by May 1st, 1933. So a day before the deadline, a man brings in $2,980 to a Manhattan bank to exchange after the fact, of course, they realized the bills were from this ransom. He had given his name as J.J. Faulkner, uh, but they went to the address he gave, and no one by that name lived there, and the person who did live there had no involvement in the um, kidnapping. So during a 30-month period, a number of the ransom bills were spent throughout New York City. Detectives realized that these were being spent along this route of the Lexington, Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan, including this German-Austrian neighborhood of Yorkville. On September 18, 1934, a bank teller notices a gold certificate from the ransom. A New York license plate has been penciled in the bill's margin, and this bill is eventually traced to a, a gas station. The station manager had written down the license number because his customer was acting suspicious and was possibly a counterfeiter. The license plate belonged to a sedan owned by Richard, also known as Bruno Hauptmann, who lived in the Bronx. He was an immigrant with a criminal record in Germany. When he was arrested, he was carrying a single $20 gold certificate, and he seemed shocked when the police started calling him the, kid, the Lindenberg baby kidnapper, also telling him, quote, you're going to burn, baby. Damn. So making matters worse for him, over $14,000 of the ransom money are found is found in his garage. He states that the money and other items had been left with him by his friend and former business partner, a man named Isidore Fish. Now, Fish had died a few months earlier on March 29th of that year, shortly after returning to Germany. He stated that, Hauptmann stated he only learned about this money after Fish's death that this shoebox that was left had contained all of this money. He kept the money because he said that Fish owed him, I'm sorry, Fish owed him money. So it was kind of like, he felt like he should just take it. Right. So he consistently denies any connection to the crime or knowledge that the money in his house was from the ransom. He's taken back to police headquarters where he is questioned for hours and beaten at least one time. His wife, Anna, Anna, Anna hires a lawyer named James Fawcett, and they begin figuring out if he has a credible alibi for March 1st, 1932. Police brought in witnesses who had taken some of the ransom money to see if they could identify Halpman as the person who used the bills, and none could. They then bring in John Condon and Charles Lindbergh Sr. to see if they can identify him as being the voice of Cemetery John. Condon couldn't initially uh, identify the voice. Lindbergh was also unsure, but would later change his mind, saying that Halpman was 100% the voice he had heard that night in the cemetery two and a half years earlier. 
which is like impossible. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Now, another aspect of this case that makes it incredibly messy is there are three entities investigating. We have the New Jersey investigators. We now have the New York investigators, as well as the FBI, all of whom have their own theories. Now, obviously, all of them are relying on the New Jersey investigation as sort of this foundation, which we know was incompetent. And at this point, the New Jersey investigators are humiliated because they're getting their asses handed to them like daily in the press for their incompetence. I mean, they're the ones who let the crime scene get trampled on. Yeah, just, and just did everything wrong. Right, just day one, they, they were fucking up. And letting Lindbergh basically lead the investigation. Crazy. So this leads to a truly unbelievable tidbit. So the New Jersey investigators had hired a early fingerprint expert to be on the case to kind of examine the ladder. He, of course, found the ladder had tons of fingerprints, police fingerprints. Oh, my God. Were, they were just covered in police fingerprints, but he managed to, like, go through them one by one and kind of eliminate those fingerprints. No one fingerprints. wore gloves? No. He does manage to find a set on the ends of the ladder that were unidentified and were, in his opinion, likely to be the prints of the maker of the ladder who would be someone involved in the kidnapping. The- Wait, are we talking about the ladder? Yes. I thought you were talking about letter. No, the ladder that you was used to climb into the window. Well, regardless of what they were examining. <laughs> no, they there wasn't hundreds of fingerprints on the ladder. <laughs> they should have used gloves. Totally. So he determines that they're not a match for Halpman. And when he tells this fact to the New Jersey investigators, they seem uninterested and almost annoyed that this guy was bringing it to their attention. They had their guy... Shortly after this, all fingerprints were wiped off the ladder by state police. <gasps> now, obviously, this doesn't prove Halpman wasn't involved, but it certainly is evidence the defense would want to use, especially due to the fact that investigators are saying it's just him. So they're no longer saying it's this gang of immigrants like before. So this is really important uh, for the defense to know because it's like, well, he clearly wasn't there that day. Right. So obviously something's going on. Because they couldn't find his prints. Yeah. So, so who did this, the latter? Did they hit they hid this evidence from, yes. the, from the defense? Yes. That's so illegal. There's more. So despite the fact that there's zero physical evidence against Halpman, which is like comp you know, that happens, he is indicted in the Bronx on September twenty fourth, nineteen forty thirty four for extorting the fifty thousand dollar ransom from Charles Lindbergh. And two weeks later, on October 8th, he is indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. As the trial approaches, a suspicion pattern begins. The emergence of evidence that will help the prosecution and the disappearance of evidence that could help help, help Hauptman. One of the first examples of this is John Condon now agreeing to testify that he was mistaken earlier and in his opinion, Hauptman was Cemetery John and he did recognize the voice. Another thing the prosecution does is they make sure Dr. Mitchell doesn't testify to anything other than their new theory that the baby died from a fall while being taken from the home, despite there being no evidence of this. In fact, many believed falling on a wet, muddy ground would not have produced the skull fractures discovered during the examination. Why were they hell-bent on saying the child died now this way at the home? If the killing took place where the body was found, it was a more urban jurisdiction, and they wanted to try Halpman in the more rural jurisdiction of the farmhouse where they would be more likely to get a death penalty conviction. This is so fucked. (laughs) It gets worse. As the trial is about to start, the Halpmans 
seemingly received some great news. William Randolph Hearst has agreed to provide them with a well-known defense attorney named Edward Riley. They accept not knowing that Hearst has an agreement with the lawyer to provide inside info from the defense that he could then exploit to inflame the public's hatred of what he was publicizing as the most villainous man in the country. Making that even worse, Edward Riley was a huge fan of Lindbergh and would (gasps) regularly tell people off the record that he wanted his client to fry. I hate it. (laughs) Luckily for Halpman, Riley hires a local attorney named Lloyd Fisher, who is very quickly on to what he considered a railroading to be happening. Outside of Halpman's wife, he was probably the only person in the country who thought he was innocent. His opinion is based on all of this instant evidence kind of being revised to implicate Halpman, things like Handwriting experts who initially said that it was not Halpman's handwriting now saying that he is the one who wrote the ransom notes. Uh, it's it, like definitely him. Wildest of all, he finds out that Henry Breckenridge, wait, sorry, no, Henry Breckenridge, yeah, this is um, the attorney that Lindbergh worked for that was like an associate of Guggenheim. This guy at some point before Halpman's arrest uh, indicated that he thought Isidore Frisch, the guy who had left the money behind, was possibly involved uh, in the scheme to get this ransom. Yeah. And they never bring that up as like a, you know, thing that could prove that Halpman was innocent. This is never looked into. All of these revisions helped solidify a circumstantial case against Halpman, but prosecutors were really looking for some physical evidence. So after searching Halpman's home for wood that could have matched the latter, um, comes up empty, empty handed, they bring in a wood expert named Arthur Kohler. And wouldn't you know it, this leads to more explosive evidence. And this time it's considered the nail in Hauptmann's coffin. So as I mentioned earlier, police did a thorough investigation of Hauptmann's home, looking for any evidence that he built the ladder there. The initial reports revealed nothing, but at some point these reports are backdated and revised by a Lieutenant named Bornman. He says then that he did find an eight-foot gap in the attic floor planks that appeared to match the board in the ladder that Kohler had said he believed came from an attic floor. They refused to let the Hauptman's attorney look at this evidence, who are then accusing the investigators of manufacturing it. Why did they make this accusation? Because this revision happened after Kohler testified to the grand jury, giving his opinion on the ladder's construction and the wood used, etc., Technically, investigators could then go back to the crime scene and to the ladder and make it match. Kohler was then asked to go back in with this new information and make a new determination. Now he concludes that the missing plank was a match for the ladder used during the kidnapping. There was finally concrete physical evidence to tie Halpman to the kidnapping scene. The country was more convinced than ever that he was guilty, and the press was only too happy to push this narrative. Newspapers didn't even refer to him by his name. All of them called him the killer. Even the courtroom situation was not good for people's perception of Hauptman. He lost 30 pounds since his arrest and was pale and sickly. Next to him was his attorney who had syphilis at the time oh, no. and would show up to court hungover after spending, spending the previous night with sex workers and drinking. Look at my lawyer, dog. <laughs> I'm going the, to jail. <laughs> seriously. At the prosecution table... Charles Lindbergh sat at the prosecution's table the whole fucking trial 
this American hero who's just a constant reminder to the jurors, like who is the hero and who is the villain. This is like, this does not happen. You don't have the father of the dead (laughs) child sitting at the prosecution table. Like, yeah, that's just the extent of his power uh, at this time. Oh my God. So his trial for capital murder began on January 2nd, 1934. And as we know, was soon dubbed the trial of the century. Reporters swarmed this town. Every hotel room was booked. And Riley Hauptmann's lawyer was incompetent from the start. Even if you believe all of these witnesses revised their opinions, the handwriting experts, Condon Lindbergh, even if you don't think the fingerprint evidence was relevant or that Dr. Mitchell was, wasn't coached, as a defense attorney, you should still use all of this to create reasonable doubt. Like He had a lot of uh, opportunities to be like, well, why did you change your mind? And he didn't. Because he had syphilis. He was like... <laughs> he was whatever. He, he had, wasn't feeling good. He was not feeling it. So, I mean, we all know this. This is very, un- this is unbelievable um, and does lead to a lot of fights between Riley and Fisher, who's like, what the hell are you doing? But he's just a side counsel. Like, he's not the one in charge. Of course, the most dramatic evidence, um, the wood expert, Kohler, takes the stand. He testifies that a missing floorboard in Hauptman's attic was the source. What are you laughing at? <laughs> I'm laughing at wood expert. I know, but I don't know what else to call him. (laughs) He must have had another job. Um, So he testifies that the missing floorboard in Hauptman's attic was the source for segment 16 on the ladder. Many points of his analysis, as I mentioned, rely on the honesty of Lieutenant Bornman's report, who, as I mentioned, had ample time after hearing Kohler's testimony to implement things he knew the expert would be looking for, such as nail holes, uh, scuff marks, etc. He even had the opportunity, if he wanted to, to use Halpman's own wood plane to give both pieces a similar nicked appearance. Halpman, uh, by the way, is a carpenter. So this I thought was kind of funny because it sounds like something I would probably be mad about. <laughs> like you're on trial for murder, but you're like, um, I would never construct a ladder that shitty. <laughs> like that was sort of one of his complaints yeah. uh, about it all. Because it is a pretty shoddy ladder. Later, people will concede that this evidence could have been tampered with. And again, a perfect opportunity for Riley to at least cast doubt on why this report was backdated and revised after the testimony of the expert. I just want to state here that none of this necessarily means Halpman is innocent, of course, but it seems to indicate that the prosecutors and others in power wanted a conviction and were willing to do what it took to get one. Luckily, he had the help of an absolutely um, useless and compromised defense attorney. So now the defense puts on a very lackluster lackluster defense. I mean, at this point, the conviction is all but certain, but they still don't do anything. They just kind of go through the motions. After closing arguments, the judge all but instructs the jury to convict. It's basically a very pro-prosecution jury instruction. 10,000 people or more are outside the courtroom screaming, kill Halpman, <gasps> like while this is happening. On February 3rd, 1935, he's convicted and immediately sentenced to death. His attorneys appeal, and at this point, Lloyd Fisher is repping him through the appeal process. He loses his first appeal, he applies for another, 
Um, at this time, there's a new governor in New Jersey. His name is Harold Hoffman, and he's very interested in the case and feels like something is off about the whole thing. He secretly visits Hauptman in his cell on the evening of October 16, 1935, with a stenographer who speaks uh, fluent German. And he didn't state this publicly, but he comes away believing he is possibly innocent. And at the very least, there were questions about the investigation and that the prosecution was handled really corruptly. Hoffman urges members of the Court of Errors and Appeals to visit him as well, Hauptman as well. And on December 5th, 1935, the governor quietly reopens the kidnapping case. Coincidentally, shortly after this, Lindbergh shocks his wife by telling her that they would be relocating to England or Sweden for the winter, possibly longer. In late January 1936, while declaring that he held no position on the guilt or innocence of Hoffman, Hoffman cites evidence that the crime was not a one-person job and directs Schwarzkopf, the um, head of the New Jersey State Police, to continue a thorough and impartial investigation in an effort to bring all parties involved to just justice. And he is receiving credible evidence of others being involved, which may or may not exonerate Hauptman, but should still be looked into. Halpin continues losing his appeals, and he is finally scheduled to die on March 31st, 1936. He gets a small reprieve when his lawyer, Fisher, finds a new reason to open up another appeal, but that goes nowhere. And at that point, uh, the governor says he can no longer issue another reprieve. He just ran out of time to find anything to halt this execution. Halpin turns down a large offer from a Hearst newspaper for a confession and refuses a last-minute offer to commute his sentence from the death penalty to life without parole in exchange for a confession, and he is electrocuted on April 3rd, 1936. Now, he, uh, Halpin continues to be obsessed with the case after his death, Halpin's death, and hires his own investigator to continue digging into it. After the execution, he's not the only one who now sees how unethical the whole thing was. Some reporters and independent investigators have numerous questions about the way in which the investigation had been run and the fairness of the trial, including witness tampering and planted evidence. And many people start commenting on the fact of all of this, including the American Bar Association, who issues a report on the unfairness of the publicity in the trial, calling the behavior of the press and radio commentators, quote, perhaps the most spectacular and depressing example of improper publicity and professional misconduct ever presented to the people of the United States in a criminal trial. Um, the governor himself will say in 1938, someday someone may supply the irrefutable answer to the question molded from all the enigmas of the Lindbergh crime. Did the wrong man die in the electric chair? Twice in the 1980s, Anna Hauptman sues the state of New Jersey for unjust execution of her husband. The suits are dismissed due to prosecute, prosecutorial immunity Fuck and statute of limitations. She continues fighting to clear his name until her death at the age of 95 in 1994. Now we'll take a break here and come back with the theories. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Now, Many people believe that Halpman is guilty. Like, so it's not like no one thinks that anymore, and or at the very least that he's part of this plot in some way. Uh, Robert Zorn wrote a book in 2012 called Cemetery John. This proposes that Halpman was part of a conspiracy with two other German-born men named John and Walter Knoll. And this theory is based on something that happened to his father, economist Eugene Zorn. Eugene Zorn believed that as a teenager, he had overheard this conspiracy being discussed between the three men. So that book goes more into this theory. Inside job theories are also very popular. Was it one of the domestic workers who obviously knew the family's schedule well or could have told one of their more unsavory friends? Another theory is that Anne's sister, Elizabeth, who if we remember from last episode, was Charles's first choice, but she was too sick. Uh, The theory is that she never got over Charles picking Anne instead of her and killed the baby in a fit of jealousy. And Charles, who was obviously scandal, uh, he didn't want to have any scandals, covered it up uh, to avoid that. 
But the more interesting theories involve a suspect that would indicate the ultimate inside job, Charles Lindbergh Sr. himself. So a prevailing longtime theory is that Charles Lindbergh accidentally killed his son in a prank gone wrong. He was a known prankster, just another one of his bad qualities, often hiding the child from Anne to kind of scare her. Adding to this theory is that this notorious prankster seemed to abruptly stop his pranks altogether post-kidnapping. In a book called Crime of the Century, The Lindbergh Kidnapping Hoax by criminal defense attorney Gregory Algren, he says that he thinks Lindbergh climbed a ladder and brought his son out of a window, but dropped the child, killing him, so he hid the body in the woods, then covered up the crime. He was only too happy to let Halpman take the blame. But perhaps the wildest theory of all involving Charles is out of the book I used as my main source. So there's a little background. I'm going to try to keep this succinct because it's very detailed. And this was literally 10 chapters in the book, oh breaking this down. So I recommend the book. It's very well written. And this theory is so detailed, uh, but I'm going to see what I can do here. What's the book called again? I don't remember. I set it up top. <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> it's like the Lindbergh kidnapping suspect number one, Lisa Perlman, I think. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, she's from the Bay Area, by the way. Oh. I don't know if that matters. So background. In the 1920s, Elizabeth Morrow is diagnosed with severe heart disease following a rheumatic fever. Lindbergh is very interested in biological work at this time and becomes invested in her treatment. After asking her doctor why surgery could not reverse the damage, Lindbergh was told that the procedure would take longer than the heart could be removed from the body without causing permanent damage. Lindbergh, his engineering brain sort of kicks into gear and he ponders why couldn't a machine be used to sustain the live organ during the surgery? Through a connection he has with an, with an anesthetist named Palulal Flag. He is informed about the work of Alexis Carroll, who had been working on problems related to sustaining organs in vitro and had been awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1912 for pioneering vascular suturing techniques. The very next day, Lindbergh makes an appointment to meet Carroll at his laboratory in the Rockefeller Institute, at the Rockefeller Institute, which is like 10 miles from where the body is found, by the way. There he sees what Carol is working on, which is a rudimentary artificial heart that is nowhere near being viable. Lindbergh is convinced that he can do better and help out with this project. For more than two years, he spends all the time he can spare from his aviation duties working on this artificial heart with Carol without anyone having any inkling about what he's doing. So he's working on this device at the time of the kidnapping and it was truly their obsession. Charles, Charles's diaries are blank for all of these months that the kidnapping is happening. He wrote every day and all of a sudden these entries stop. Now, remember Lindbergh was constantly off on his own missions during the months that followed the kidnapping. There was one week, like a week and a half after the baby went missing that he's just gone for a week. He always says he's on these wild goose chases trying to kind of find evidence, figure out things, meet kidnappers, whatever. And people are often unable to reach him. At the same time, Carol is doing experiments that will 
be important in medical history. Carroll hoped to improve his perfusion device by conducting experiments using the body of a living person, not just animals. But unfortunately, this person would have to die as a result of these tests. In early April, he reports exciting results to the Institute's board. His team had just kept a segment of harvested carotid artery alive for a full month. He did not identify the artery's donor except to convey that during the past year, his team had focused their vivisection experiments on both animal and human subjects. Now, Carol and Lindbergh were both proponents of eugenics. We talked about this last week, and they both believed weak infants were meant to die. Perlman theorizes that Lindbergh's son died on Carol's operating table on March 8th, 1932, as a part of this experiment. Fuck. She lays this all out in her book uh, as like as far as the timeline goes of where Charles was and when. Uh, does this explain why he headed up the investigation in order to ensure no one would find out what happened or look into things he didn't want them looking into? She also provides potential physical evidence. During the investigation, um, they get some stuff tested at something called Squib Laboratories. They test various debris and items related to the crime scene uh, where the body was found, as well as items associated with the case, including the pajamas that were given to the parents to prove uh, to prove that they had the baby by the ransom, or sorry, the kidnappers, the supposed kidnappers. All of the findings in this report were determined to be of no value, but Perlman disagrees. She looks at this report, the Squib report. Some of the things she points to are things that are very specific to medical laboratory work, things that could be used during medical experiments at the Rockefeller Institute, including black rubber debris found under the buttons of the pajamas that were a match for medical-grade rubber gloves used at the Institute. She also finds this report about something that was thought to be blood but then was determined to be phenol red. Phenol red. This is a dye used as a pH indicator in medical labs. There were also rubber shoe covers um, that were something that is used in laboratories. Um, they were unusually large foot size, and they were similar to a footprint um, outside the far- found outside the farmhouse. And it was it was um, not used because Halfman wore a size nine, and it didn't fit their narrative that he was the, the guilty party, so he couldn't have produced this footprint. According to the book, all of this could indicate that the child was taken alive to a medical lab, immediately stripped of his clothing before being experimented on. Once his organs were harvested and he died, they waited months in order to get the body decomposed enough so that there wouldn't be much to use as evidence. Animals could explain the missing organs. Charles would make sure to be out of town on the day the body was found, which he was. Now, Carol also was already in touch with state institutions before the kidnapping, looking for what he referred to as, quote, feeble-minded subject matters. Uh, so is it possible in the name of their work, which they believed would lead to a sort of immortality, Lindbergh would sacrifice his own uh, son? Perlman says yes. Quote, Lindbergh might well have felt like Abraham offering the Almighty his son Isaac, not to the biblical God, but to the God of science, with Carell as the chosen instrument. Through twisted logic, that was how the eaglet might live up to the expectations of greatness like those achieved by his father. 
Years later, Lindbergh and Carol would share their invention with the world. Though he was too late to save his sister-in-law, the work that he did with Carol laid the groundwork for the medical innovations that would later save those with similar diagnoses and was the foundation for modern-day open-heart surgery. But was his son achieved sacrificed in, to, in order to achieve this? So anyway, adding to this weird reputation is the fact that later on in life, uh, under an assumed name from the late 1950s through the late 1960s, Charles Lindbergh secretly fathered seven illegitimate children by three mistresses in Germany. So that he continued this weird life of deception while he's married, doing all these weird trips abroad and continuing this weird obsession with having like a German Aryan type baby or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, He dies of lymphoma at the age of 72 in 1974 in Hawaii. Ten days before he dies, he writes a letter to all of his German mistresses telling them to maintain the utmost secrecy about his illicit activities uh, even after his death. So later on, DNA tests later will prove that these children are his. And his daughter with Anne, his youngest child, Reeve Lindbergh, she writes in her personal journal journal in 2003, this story reflects absolutely Byzantine layers of deception on the part of our shared father. These children did not even know who he was. He used a pseudonym with them to protect them, perhaps to protect himself. Absolutely. So is what he did to Charles Jr. another one of his deceptions? Who knows? But it's very interesting. <laughs> it's, it's a very compelling case she made. And she... Like I said, I gave you guys the quick version. It is very detailed and gets into like the nitty gritty in her book. Yeah. But it's crazy to think that that could be a possibility. I I mean, mean, at the end of the day, regardless of if he murdered his own son, fuck this guy. Yeah. I was reading a little bit into his arc and not that it absolves him of his grossness, but he does have like, he does visit some like concentration camps after World War II and, and completely has like... Oh, whoops. <laughs> Whoa, oh, whoops. It's, but it's like a classic example of like, yeah, you fuck around with fascists, this is what happens. Like, oh my do you know what God. I mean? It's like, yeah, you fucking idiot. Like, <sighs> it's like a, just like a classic oh my example. God. Oh, whoops. I, oh. I mean, the thing is, he's like brilliant in some ways. Obviously, he creates this medical advance if he didn't use his child. <laughs> to do it like it helps a lot of people but he's also like dumb as shit on other things because his ego is so easily stroked that he's willing to like oh hitler gave me a medal he can't be all bad like oh my do you know what i mean like that kind of shit do you think it was this ultimate inside job i mean part of me is like always sort of like going to go along with the most interesting (laughs) theory that seems remotely true. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. I think she makes a really good case and it does explain a lot of his weird behavior. But at the same time, I know people can act very weird in these situations uh, and not the way you think you would act. Right. He also just is a weirdo. He's an extremely weird guy. Like, yeah, I don't beyond the evilness like the bad whatever, he's just a weirdo. I don't usually like taking that, like people's personality or behaviors following a murder 
into like I don't like w- putting too much on that. You, right. you hear that often. In yeah, like, I don't ever really. That's not something that ever plays with me, really. No, but like you that. do like on Dateline. You'll have like an investigator being like, "I didn't see him cry, so we knew he was guilty." Yes, I agree. I hate that because I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I'd be weird too in that situation. Like, yeah, it's possible. Um, but I think. I think the most interesting aspect of it is that he was really embarrassed of this child. Yes. So in that regard, I can see him thinking... Well, there's motive. There's motive. You could say that was motive. Yeah. And it's sick to think someone would take it to that extreme. But but if he he did think it would give this child some value, I mean, it's just disgusting. Yeah. But I don't know. Uh, I recommend the book. This section is actually really interesting, especially the history of this medical device. Uh, And the doctor, he also, he gets wrapped up in the Nazi shit too, because Charles brings him into it. And then he starts working with the Germans. Like, so it's like a whole mess uh, and gross. And he ruins his whole like reputation, deservedly so obviously. Right, right. But yeah, so it's definitely an interesting book. Uh, It's very well researched, like I mentioned up top. And I, I like this crime writer because she's um, meticulous. Yeah. So it's definitely a wild theory, but she does back it up. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know what the truth is, but it's well, uh, you can guy, see why this case took on so much conspiracy theory uh, type. Well, there's know, one thing we know for sure is that the cops and the uh, district attorneys they fucked they fucked up this whole investigation. This and would the, never try. I mean, it might fly, but this would be a big thing today. Like this was happened like in the OJ case, you can even say like a similar thing. Like people think this was the right guy, but the, the cops then manufactured evidence uh, to prove it, even though they might've been able to prove it without. But the minute they were speculated to have manufactured it, it was done. And right. they, and the defense used that against them. Right. This defense didn't use any of that. Right. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have worked, but it's like they didn't even try. They didn't even try. Uh, So, yeah, that's the case. Wow, Desi. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Great, great research. We'll be back with our mini episode soon. Bye. Bye. (laughs) It'll be soon. (laughs) Bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.